0: feels like progress. The Chime credit builder visa credit card is issued by Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA members FDIC. Out of network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to chime.com slash disclosures for details.
1: This Washington Post live podcast is sponsored by YouTube.
2: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post live, bringing the newsroom to you live.
3: Hello, and welcome to Washington Post live. I'm Danielle Brill, tech at work writer for the Washington Post. Today marks the latest Uh, installment, excuse me, of our series Race in America. We'll speak with two entrepreneurs about the impact of the pandemic, the country's racial reckoning, and much more. I'd like to welcome our first guest, Tristan Walker, CEO and founder of Walker & Company Brands. Welcome to Washington Post Live, Tristan.
4: Hey, Danielle. How's it going?
3: It's going good. It's good to see you. Um, I want to just jump into your entrepreneurial journey. Uh, your first brand, Bevel, it aims to address the lack of health and personal care products for Black men. I'd like to ask you, you know, what led you to start a company that would fill that gap?
4: Yeah, I mean, it was crazy to me that for an industry that's been around for hundreds of years, um, you know, Black men weren't being served. I wasn't getting served. For 15 years, I could not shave. Every single way I encountered facial hair removal was terrible. Um, And I felt for an audience that is so culturally influential, for an audience that has the purchasing power to kind of buy great products for them, uh, for an audience that is growing fast in this country demographically, I felt that it was a wide open opportunity to build an ambitious company uh, that served the unique needs of this consumer audience. And, And that's exactly what we did.
3: Your company went on to raise millions of dollars from investors, and it was later acquired by the giant Procter & Gamble in 2018. Yet raising capital was still somewhat difficult. Um, I'd like to hear a little bit more about your journey and why you think those issues came up.
4: Yeah, look, I mean, first and foremost, uh, most folks that are in the capital interests do not reflect the diversity of the consumers that we hope to serve, right? Um, Look, we are a company that's serving folks of color. Uh, who will be the majority of this country in in 20, 30 years. Um, But the investor class, when I think about general partners and venture capital firms, they do not reflect uh, that growing diversity. So it was difficult um, to raise money from folks that really didn't understand the consumer need as intimately as I. Additionally, we're up against, I think, two really important um, kind of features or bugs in the system. Uh, The first is laziness and second is stubbornness. Um, you know, we all know the data that's out there. Um, More diverse opportunities, investing in diverse opportunities can lead to more profits, right? Having more diverse teams can lead to more profits and folks still choose to not make those investments. Um, So either it's laziness and stubbornness or something more sinister at play uh, if we all know that investing in these opportunities yield better outcomes economically for us. Um, So, you know, those are the Two things that I think we ran into, not only when we were starting to raise money, but even to this day, uh, folks having less of a belief in kind of the opportunity ahead of us. But that's fine, because I think that there's an emerging kind of investor class that understands these things a little bit more authentically uh, than the folks that were investing in this sort of thing 10 years ago.
3: So along the same lines, um, you know, when it comes to pitching your business, you were pitching to a lot of folks that don't represent the diverse uh, consumers that you're targeting. So how do you actually get your message across to that group?
4: Look, I mean, at at some point, um, you can't continue to repeat yourself to folks that are unwilling to understand what you're hoping to accomplish. I'll give you a perfect example uh, that I like to share when I I talk about this. It was my very first pitch, actually. Um, You know, I was nervous as most entrepreneurs were, um, but I was pretty confident about what we had in front of us. You know, I had a 15 slide pitch deck. um, And, you know, I had one slide that showed ProActive, the acne system on one side of the slide. uh, And then on the other side of the slide, it showed Bevel. Bevel is a brand that helps eliminate razor bumps on on men's faces, right? Um, So ProActive is well known for its reduction of acne, right? So I thought that those two systems that we were creating that were fairly similar in construct. Um, so at an investor on the other side of the table, the investor kind of leaned in and said, Tristan, I'm not sure solving issues related to razor bumps will have as big an impact as solving issues related to acne. At which point I, I kind of understood what that person is saying, but then I just thought in my head, all that that person had to do was get on the phone with 10 black folks and eight of them would have said that this is a pretty persistent issue. Um, and let's just say you didn't know 10 Black folks, which is a problem all in and of itself. Uh, you get on the phone with 10 non-Black folks, and four to five of them would have said the exact same thing. Um, so there was this kind of um, forming of an opinion that was not informed, even if they didn't have the authentic connection to that idea. And that goes back to this laziness thing. So the, the solution was to continue to pitch. And at some point, we found a number of investors that got it and were willing to make those phone calls.
3: And you, you mentioned this, that, you know, these struggles aren't something that happened just in your early days. Um, perhaps they're even continuing. Do you think uh, the sentiment is changing or improving at all?
4: I'd like to hope so. Um, look, I mean, the thing that I say for companies, investors, if you're not focused on this imperative for the next 20 years, you're not going to be around 20 years from now. Yeah, I think the largest companies really need to think about this in a unique and intimate way. You know, I think about some of the largest companies that we know. Take a Facebook, for instance, right? In, in a world where the majority of the world are folks of color, the majority of this country will be people of color in 20, 30 years. You know, if Facebook were built in the year 2040 instead of the year 2004 when it was. You know, I, I think about a few questions, right? Would it be Spanish language first or English first, <laughs> right? How would it have been developed? Would it have been at the time iPhone first or Android first? Right. These are kind of real system change questions that we need to be thinking about right now and implementing for the very long term. Right. And for folks that aren't thinking about it, that's fine. I just fundamentally believe that they're just not going to be around twenty, thirty 30 years from now. And there's going to be a new crop of companies that get that and, and kind of take their share.
3: That's a great transition into the racial reckoning that's going on, and I want to explore that a little bit with you. Um, you've long said that companies need to create more products for customers of color and also have more diverse leadership. Um, do you think that George Floyd's death created a new sense of urgency for that, and how do you feel about the pace of change currently?
4: I, I think so, and it's, it's really fascinating because I see it, especially in my kind of public board directorships that I sit on you see shareholders making this a very important imperative, right? Um, And when I think about the real imperative behind retail investors and supporting companies uh, that believe in the same values that they have, you're starting to see it manifest in, in a really kind of positive way. The thing that I've been inspired by, at least over the past 18 months or so, is that I think that there's more acknowledgement of the trauma that black folks have had to face over the past few hundred years, right? Um, but acknowledgement isn't enough. Once you've acknowledged it, you have to really model the way, right? And the only way to model the way is to really understand, um, and appreciate and execute against the values, uh, that you have not only for your company, but the people within it. I think all too often after the acknowledgement folks try to go to action and it's impossible to act without knowing what your values are. Right. So I think that there are a lot of companies trying to feel their way through what that modeling looks like, uh, redefining and getting more precise about those values. But I am intrigued and inspired by the fact that we are forcing companies to start to ask that of themselves. So I think the the pace of change could always be faster, Um, but progress is good, uh, at least in this in this domain.
3: So speaking of modeling this, um, I'm curious how you use your platform, or how you think you can use your platform to affect change.
4: Yeah, look, I, I mean, I've been doing this for the past, you know, ten plus years of my career. You know, this is nothing new for me. I've dedicated my life to this. You know, as I think about Walker and Company, since our starting, we've been acknowledging this difference and this trauma, and developing solutions against it. Right. Um, it's not only important for our consumers, but our people at our company, right? I lead a company that's majority folks of color, majority uh, black folks in positions of leadership at my company. So I think that acknowledgement is important not only externally, but internally. When I think about modeling the way from the starting of our company, we've articulated and defined six values at this company that have persisted the entire life of our company. Courage, inspiration, respect, judgment, wellness, loyalty, you know, we make our decisions in line with those values, right? And then once we have articulated those as we have, then we can have, it, right? So I'll give you a number of examples. Uh, throughout the past 18 months, you know, we've done things in support of the community in line with those values. Um, for example, last year, late last year, in um, acknowledgement of some of the mental health trauma that, uh, you know, Black folks have faced, particularly in a post George Floyd world, but kind of writ large. You know, we partnered with the, the app Headspace, the mental health app Headspace to offer free memberships for our community, right? If we're a personal care brand delivering personal care solutions for our community, it doesn't have to be soaps and oils, right? Um, but it can also be things that kind of aid them in their own mental health. Uh, at the start of the pandemic, uh, when we realized that, you know, there's going to have to be a lot of virtual learning at home. You know, we partnered with Urban Prep Academies in Chicago to offer students um, kind of free laptops, um, you know, because we knew there's going to be disparities of access, right? Um, you know, these are things that, you know, we have been doing since the start of the company. They're a part of what we do, and it didn't take these traumatic events to cause us to want to do them. Um, they were systematized from the very beginning at our company because we know that we have the platform to do that as authentically as possible and our consumers demand that of them.
3: So some retailers are making commitments uh, to stock 15% of their shelves with products made by Black-founded companies. I'm curious, what's your reaction to that?
4: I think it's a great start. Um, you know, one thing that I'd like to say is, you know, we can do more than 15%, I think. You know, um, you know in a world where, you know, Folks of color, again, uh, will be the majority of this country in 2030 years. You know, folks of color are not only 15% of the consumer impact in this world, right? And I think that there is an opportunity for us to really right-size share of shelf uh, with cultural impact. Um, the 15% is a wonderful start, and I think it's my job, our team's job, our consumer's job and responsibility to show these retailers what our cultural impact and influence actually is and kind of force that kind of right sizing. But I'm grateful. And I think consumers are grateful that folks are starting to have this conversation. But it's just a start.
3: Makes sense. And earlier this year, we interviewed uh, City CFO Mark Mason on Washington Post Live here. And he gave Corporate America a D in its goals to work towards greater diversity, inclusion, and racial equality. What grade would you give Corporate America and what do you think it'll take to get an A?
4: Great question. Um, I think for the, the companies that I've been able to associate myself with, um, I think they've all been doing a really wonderful job, right? Um, you know, I've, I've been very deliberate Uh, about uh, kind of working with folks that really take a care and and take an intellectual honesty in in having this conversation. I think kind of corporate um, policy writ large, I think that D is appropriate. Now, what does it take um, to get better? Number one, you gotta diversify these boards, right? When I think about corporate governance, right? It's important that whether it be folks of color or kind of different genders have a seat at that table Right. So establish systems of governance that can be equitable for all. Right. When I think about the financial interest, there needs to be kind of lower barriers to entry of participation uh, so that we can invest in companies like Walker and Company in the future. Um, We need to have, uh, you know, DEI HR teams uh, that are thinking about kind of equity, not as just an HR consideration, Um, but a cross-functional consideration, not only in HR, but marketing and operations, et cetera. So this is a true activity system approach uh, that I think is going to take some time for all these corporations to to get to that A. I think it is possible. It is not immediately so, um, but I think that D is appropriate. Um, But I think that there's a a, a wonderful path uh, to that A that we could all lead into.
3: So you, you kind of touched on this in the last question, so uh, hopefully we can just dig a little further into it. Um, but, you know, your company uh, is comprised of mostly uh, people of color. I'm curious what advice you have for companies of all sizes looking to diversify their workplace.
4: Yeah, I mean, n- number one, say it out loud. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's one thing for you to think it is one thing for you to say it and write it down and document it. I think one thing that served us well is, you know, before I started the company, you know, I mentioned I wrote down our values, right? Courage, inspiration, respect, judgment, wellness, loyalty. Those are my personal values too. I define them. You know, we make sure that we recruit, um, you know, candidates uh, that kind of show us that they embrace those things. We'll ask leading questions to give it your courage and your loyalty and your respect. When we do semiannual annual reviews, you're rated against your um, kind of attainment of your quantitative goals, but also your adherence to those values. And the wonderful thing about each of those values is that they are not gender specific. They are not ethnicity specific. Right. Um, and I was very, very deliberate about uh, kind of having a welcoming set of values. And as a result, I think that really served us well to diversify our own workforce. So it's important not only for the executive leadership within these companies, um, but also the folks that are not in positions of leadership to question what those values actually are. Is the company actually following them? And what are the metrics to help you know whether or not that's happening or not? And I think a lot of folks might wake up and realize that they are in the wrong place at the wrong time. And there are companies like ours that might, they might be better served um, partnering.
3: I want to jump into your background a little bit. You grew up in Queens, New York, and you said that for you, entrepreneurship was born out of necessity. How did necessity shape your ambition?
4: Yeah, I mean, um, look, I wanted to get wealthy. Uh, Where I grew up, there are only a few ways to do it. Uh, be an actor and an athlete it didn't work out for me too well. <laughs> uh, second was the work on Wall Street, which I tried. I was terrible at it. And entrepreneurship was really the last way to do it. And the thing that I realized over time as I've gotten older is that it was less about the wealth and more about the autonomy and ownership and what that can create. You know, it wasn't until that I had the great fortune to partner with Procter Gamble that I realized and recognized what that meant for me. Um, to me, entrepreneurship is an opportunity for freedom. Right. Um, You know, it wasn't until that, you know, we had the merger of our company that I really realized what freedom really meant. Um, And freedom means to me uh, not owing anybody anything. Right. And when you own. Right. You only owe it to yourself um, to do the right thing, not only for your business results, but also your people. Right. So entrepreneurship for me. Um, kind of started with the output, right? Like get wealthy. And as I've gotten older and I've managed the company, I started to focus a lot more on the inputs to get to that output. Um, And fortunately, ownership um, is an important input to that kind of real true output of freedom that I really wanted. Um, And I'm thankful to have kind of gone through that experience to come to that conclusion. So my necessity was really freedom.
3: So we have time for one more question, and I just want to talk about sort of what's happening now. Um, You're now in Atlanta. Uh, First of all, what took you there and um, what are you seeing as far as entrepreneurship there today?
4: Sure. Um, So, you know, both personal and professional reasons in Atlanta, this is where our consumers are. Right. Uh, We have such a density of consumers with cultural influence in this region. Um, Also, I think Atlanta is the most important city in, in the world right now. I think Atlanta has such a wonderful density of entrepreneurial energy, cultural connection, uh, corporate density, right? When I think about Fortune 500s, some 17, 18 Fortune 500s here, right? Um, And academia. And I think that there are a few regions on earth that have as much density around those three things as Atlanta. So I'm very, very excited uh, about what it has to offer. And then personally, I'm raising two young black boys Um, And I want them to be raised in an environment where they can see Black success. Um, And Atlanta is a a quintessential platform for that observation for them uh, and my family writ large. Um, So I think the combination of those two things put us in the epicenter of something that feels very special and will continue to. um, And I think we've made the absolute right choice.
3: What a great way to end this. I mean, representation really does matter. So um, good, good way to end this conversation. That's all the time we have for this. Thank you so much, Tristan, for joining us. I'll be back with Tumar, chef and co-owner of Garland, an acclaimed restaurant in North Carolina in just a few minutes. Stay with us. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post Newsroom was not involved in the production of this content.
2: Hi, I'm Brittany Luce, host of The Upload, The Rise of the Creator Economy, a podcast from YouTube in partnership with national public media. And I'm here today with content creator Randy Lau of the fantastic YouTube channel, Made with Lau. Randy, welcome. Thank you so much for coming.
1: Thanks for having me. It's really really great to be here and talking with you.
2: Wonderful. Well, to jump right in, um, in just a few words, could you describe made with lao youtube channel
1: made with lao is a chinese family recipe channel i share we share my dad's recipes he's been a chinese chef for over 50 years and he's just this incredibly talented chef he knows like mm. well over a thousand recipes so each week we share one of his mm. recipes and then we sit down together to eat it as a family and it's just this for me a personal passion project to document my dad's recipes and and at uh, in the broader world at large, it's just a way to preserve Cantonese heritage and to share it with the world.
2: That's so amazing. You know, Randy, before you launched Made with Lao, you had a completely different career. Like, talk to me about what motivated you to, to switch careers and start this channel where you're essentially getting paid to document your family's history.
1: Yeah. So before this, I was pretty deep into like the tech startup world and digital marketing. Um, I had, video was a very serious hobby of mine, but I never thought to pursue it as a career. And then the pandemic just took, just wiped out our main source of income. So I was just figuring out, you know, what do we need to do next? And it kind of just, long story short, we just decided to go all in on this YouTube idea. And um, it's been a really, a really good move for our family um, ever since.
2: It seems like it's been a pretty great move for your family. So, you know, just to mention, just a moment ago, I mentioned that you're getting paid basically to document your family's history. But to put it more concretely, like your YouTube channel is a real business, and you know, you're not alone in that. In, in 2020 alone, YouTube's creative ecosystem created over 20. Contributed over twenty billion dollars to the United States GDP. I mean, that's a really big deal. Talk to me about how your channel turns a profit, and and how you guys have been able to support yourselves via your YouTube channel.
1: Yeah. So uh, initially, when I was pitching this idea to my parents, they were I think they were a little hesitant. But you know, I was like, you know, this going to take a long time to, to start monetizing and turning this into a business we can survive off of, but you know, hmm. two and a half months in, we started monetizing and that wow. first day we made $3.57 and I was like, yes, <laughs> but you know, not a lot in the Bay area. Um, but yeah, now fast forward, like a little over a year, we're earning multiple six figures annually. And it's just been kind of mind blowing <laughs> to know like what, what opportunities are out there on, as a content creator. Um, the main revenue streams for us are. YouTube AdSense, that's a huge one. Uh, we also have our blog at mailwithloud.com where we host all of our recipes. We also monetize that through ads. Um, sponsored mm-hmm. content is another big revenue stream where you know, we'll work with brands to promote their products in our videos. And beyond that, again, I was at three and there's like tons, way more opportunities and revenue streams to be manifested on YouTube. So there's there's so many opportunities as a content creator.
2: One last question. you know, something. I find so compelling about Make With Lau is how you and your family have achieved so much success while staying true to yourselves and centering your culture for a wider audience instead of translating it. I wonder, what's the unique opportunity for uh, on YouTube for creators of color or people from other marginalized backgrounds?
1: Yeah, I think traditionally, you know, storytelling has been gatekept by you know, big companies in the media. And mm-hmm. I think YouTube is from the beginning has, has been this platform and tool that's kind of democratized storytelling for a lot of people. And you combine that mm-hmm. with, you know, at least for Asian Americans, like the success of, you know, shows like *Squid Game or Shang-Chi, um, I think there's a growing appetite for more, di- a more diverse set of voices. So I think it now is like kind of the perfect storm more than ever to become a content creator. And I think. You know, for any type of business, I think it's just really an exchange of value. And, you know, whether you're selling something or whether you're creating content, like, I think it's just YouTube is a really great way to discover what your value is and what you can bring to the world. And YouTube as a platform is really great at like funneling that value that you bring to people who will enjoy that. And, you know, uh, I think it's just, it's just been, it's just a really good time to start and to start experimenting.
2: Well, Randy, thank you so much for talking with me today. It has been great.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to get to share.
3: And now, back to Washington Post Live. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, I'm Daniela Brill, tech writer at The Washington Post. I'm pleased to introduce our next guest, Chidi Kumar. She is chef and co-owner of Garland, an acclaimed restaurant in North Carolina. Chidi, welcome to Washington Post Live. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. That intro, you know, really made me hungry watching all those plates on the video. And we'll get to food in a minute, but I want to start off with your entrepreneurial journey. Um, you immigrated from India and you went to the Bronx. You ended up settling in North Carolina. What led you to open up your own restaurant and what were the biggest challenges in making that decision?
5: Um, yeah. I mean, um, yeah. I, I, I have a very convoluted path to 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 be a restaurant owner owner here. I chose Raleigh as my home because um, it was uh, the first place in America that I felt at home. Um, And a big part of that was um, the music community here. People in bands just had a lot of almost entrepreneurial spirit, a real DIY determination. But then there was also a farmer's market um, that was, you know, two miles from downtown and open every single day. And it really reminded me of um, the farmer's market in Chandigarh uh, in India, where I grew up. And, um, and then on the other side of town, there were all of these Asian and Indian markets. So I really felt like, um, you know, at that point, Raleigh was still kind of sleepy and it wasn't in all of these uh, lists of the best place to live in America. Um, but I could have told you that, you know, there was something about to happen here and there was a, a spirit of um, simultaneously determination, but also ease and a community that really valued creativity, I felt. So um, that's sort of what brought me here. And then initially I was just playing music. I was managing bands. And in order to support my uh you know somewhat of a career uh playing music and being on tour being a recording and touring musician i was bartending in restaurants and um eventually that led to opening a music venue and then that led to opening a restaurant uh in the same building as a music venue. So it was a, a real backwards path. I didn't really, you know, pursue it as a career option. It was almost sort of like an accidental jump off a cliff, and then I found myself in this, you know, very much enmeshed in in uh, the restaurant world.
3: Wow, that's quite a path you took to get here, but uh... Looks like you found what you're what you're hoping to do. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the role of food. Um, food just plays such a big role in so many cultures. I'm curious about if you could tell me a little bit more about the significance of opening a restaurant and the role food plays for you.
5: Um, yeah, I think you know when we moved from America to America from India, um, it was it's tough. You know, I think any a person who has left their country and come to a new land, um, you know, at at the age of eight or four or 15, whatever it is, it's very difficult and, um, you know, as a family, we didn't really have any financial security. We lived in a small apartment, two bedrooms with three kids and um, I know, especially now that I have the uh, sort of insight of an adult, I can look back and say, wow, my parents were completely depressed and anxiety ridden but the only thing that really um felt normal and felt uh you know nurturing and nourishing was was dinner and my mom was very dedicated to making sure that you know we had a home cooked meal all together every night um whether you know all the circumstances leading up to that were horrible while we were eating and enjoying food um we were enjoying it and so that was like a little blip of happiness in an otherwise not so great you know childhood for several years so food um also became a source of connection for um for each other within the family but then i you know also Finally started making friends and all of my friends were from different backgrounds because I had the privilege of you know Being in New York City, which was very diverse So I would go to my friend's houses for lunch or apartments for lunch and you know uh, one person was Korean and another one was Puerto Rican and the other one was Greek and so everybody's um, Refrigerator was completely different than mine, but we also had this thing in common where you know our food was like stinky (laughs) and we maybe all felt a certain amount of um, shame about like what our moms packed for us for lunch and we could um hide together and enjoy this incredible food and so i realized how much you know food really represents um a sense of place and um can can be a, a source of connection or isolation depending on how you look at it but um overall i just started really becoming fascinated by um the commonalities that people have in different cultures, using spices. And um, it just led me down this very nerdy, historical, anthropological um, path. And I started um, studying recipes pretty much, you know, when I was a kid, uh, collecting uh, cookbooks from the public library book sales and, you know, just sort of seeing a lot of commonalities. And my mom was pretty adventurous, too. So every time we'd go to a restaurant, she'd be like, eh, it's not that good. I could do it better. And then she'd like interpret it in her own way. So she was she was really good at digging into recipes. And I learned a lot about that from her. So it, it you know, it established an identity in an otherwise um, foreign land, I guess, for me.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I want to just interject and say stinky food always means tasty food. So if you're ever around stinky food, just know it's good. Um, Agreed. Agreed. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. You testified before Congress earlier this year. And I want to read something that you said before Congress. Um, You said the restaurant industry is full of stories like you and also, quote, restaurants represent America more than any other industry. Can you expand on that a little bit? Um, sure. I
5: think, you know, on so many levels, um, we can break down how the restaurant industry represents America. Um, I think the health of the restaurant industry and the food system in general, um, is a mirror for our economic health, um, for where our priorities are for, um, you know, Everything from job numbers to uh, supply chain issues, to the labor market, to the health of a community. Um, I think oftentimes you'll find that a up-and-coming neighborhood uh, doesn't become up-and-coming until somebody takes a chance on uh, a corner that was... Um, previously, you know, uh, maybe an undesirable part of town and, uh, some young entrepreneur will say, I'm going to put a small eatery here and then everything kind of grows up around it. So, um, on on the local sense uh restaurants establish anchors in communities and neighborhoods they employ people um from that area they support uh, a lot of uh small regional um other businesses and other industries and so therefore the restaurant is um sort of creates a rippling effect it's it's the um ship in the middle of a of of a body of water and um everything around it gets affected by it so if the restaurant industry isn't healthy um You'll see that uh, there's a lot of unemployment. Um, You'll see that there are supply chain issues. You'll see that um, there are less uh, small businesses and small businesses are good for uh, local communities because we tend to spend our money within our community. um, It retains tax dollars uh, within a certain place. Um, And then uh, on a cultural side, When people of color and women are um, taking an opportunity to open a restaurant, oftentimes they're not going through traditional channels of um, large investors or even banks. Um, These are opportunities that we create out of ourselves and maybe get a loan from a family member or put up our house for mortgage or. Or all of the above, and what that means is that um, this is a make-or-break decision and investment in our life, and we will work um, tirelessly to make sure that it succeeds. So it's a it's an investment um, in you know in that spot. It's good for the landlords. It's good for the real estate, and for um, all of those reasons. And then we tend to hire people who maybe look like us, and we understand people who feel displaced. And so we're willing to uh, give a job to people that may not have another place to work. So, um, you know, when that happens over and over again, it creates a zeitgeist, it creates a cultural um, movement. And um, I think that influences the direction of the country and hopefully eventually the policies that um, support industries like ours.
3: Well, we know your industry was really hit hard by the pandemic. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit about the pressures that you faced and some of the things that you learned during this time. Um, yeah,
5: I think, um, first of all, I'd like to say that that's not a past tense. It is definitely ongoing and uh, nowhere uh, is there an end in sight. Um, in fact, we just had today three cancellation of Private parties for December because of the new um, the new COVID strain. So this has been an uh, something that we've lived with and struggled through for the last twenty months. Um, I mean, it's uh, almost become like. Uh, Living with a, we're literally living with a disease. And aside from the literal sense that you know we all, as individuals, you know, fear this virus or are afraid for our healths or the healths of our family, it's um, a daily reality that I think people who own a restaurant are um, living with. That we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know how long this is going to go on. Um, And aside from just um, you know the the emergency quote unquote, part of, of it from March until whenever, depending on where you were in this country of last year, all of those pivots that we did, you know, we, we tried takeout, even though we were not a takeout restaurant, we did meal kits for four months, we, we've, we tried all of these different ways of operating that were safer, that would allow us to keep some of our staff and then grow uh, judiciously and not um, pretend like everything was okay when it wasn't. To predict what might come in three months, um, but it also obviously has affected the supply chain. So everything from, you know, uh, vinyl or latex gloves, which you know every restaurant has to use by the box, the caseful, um, the price of that is still double than what it was before the pandemic, and it's been tripled before. Fryer oil, you know, people have people who rely on commodity products. Um, which we don't as much in our restaurant because we source so much locally, but meat is expensive. Everything is so much more expensive and there are no, um, the labor shortage has always been a plague for our restaurant um, industry, but it's out of control now. I mean, it's just really difficult. The um, There's no security and um, we're used to living with that level of um you know, no safety net as, as business owners, as small business owners, but now it really feels like, you know, a, a train is coming right behind you and you better outrun it, um, all the time. So we're, I think kind of getting used to living with this high level of anxiety, which, you know, uh, I'm not sure how much, you know, uh, emotional, psychological reserves, uh, people like us have left to, to continue, you know, uh, living with this all the time.
3: Oh, that sounds so tough. Um, you know, I, I I hear about all these challenges you just mentioned, and it's just one after another after another. Can you give us a sense of what is the state of the industry right now? And, and how does that play out for smaller restaurants? I mean, it, it sounds pretty grim based on what you're saying. Yeah, I
5: think it is pretty grim. Um, You know, I've been working with the uh, Independent Restaurant Coalition uh, since last year, and uh, there are initiatives that have helped us. Um, You know, the first, the PVP and the Idle grants, and uh, most significantly, the Restaurant Relief um, Fund, the RRF grant. but, you know, that only helped a third of the people that applied for it. So as small independent restaurants, um, oftentimes we are single shops or two or three shops. Um, we're not large corporations with investors. Um, so it's to say that it's bleak is not really uh, an exaggeration at all. I think two-thirds of um, the restaurants in this country that haven't even gotten a grant, um, I think that they count day by day, how many more days they can stay open. They owe their landlords so much money. Um, It's hard to get supplies. It's hard to get staff, Um, you know, after a while, you can endure a storm for only so long. And then after a while, you're just like, I don't know if this is, you know, I'm not able to support my family, um, for example. So I think that, um, you know, for this industry, Federal help is so important. I think that local help is important because we do contribute so much money to um, the, the tax revenue on a local, state and national level. So um, I don't know, without that, I'm not really sure how we can recover because it doesn't seem like the pandemic is really gonna go away anytime soon, unfortunately. Absolutely.
3: Yeah. Um, well, hopefully you guys get some more help because I know I'm a big fan of my local spots and I'm sure everybody in, in your hometown is as well. Um, I wanna sort of stress the importance of these small restaurants. And so I, I wanna explore with you, you know, what role food and culture can play, especially in the country's racial reckoning right now. Um, I think, you know it's
5: such a deeply complex issue. Um, for me, when, when we opened Garland, when I opened Garland, uh, it's almost been eight years. Uh, I really struggled so hard with the identity of the restaurant. Um, what category, uh, is it, you know, um, I really, my, um, motivation and my creative inspiration comes from our local ingredients and it also comes from me studying parts of india and asia that i don't really know about i mean they're you know it's not like uh well i grew up in india for eight years i lived in this one town i know everything about indian food that's not even like remotely true it's like saying somebody in sicily is required to know everything about german food it's just not um practical but i think there is a um uh, I'm not sure what the word is like a one dimensionaling of uh people of color um yeah, when it comes herb. to um, expression of so you know somebody from china um even though they might have grown up in in America if they open a restaurant, there's somewhat of an expectation that they're gonna represent their their entire heritage and their their culture and um You know, you feel that about yourself too. Like, uh, am I being uh, true to my mom's recipes? Am I being true to my grandmother's recipes? There's all this internal struggle that I don't think anybody who identifies as uh, Caucasian uh, in this country ever has to worry about it. You know, there could be somebody who grew up in Iowa and, you know, is multi-generational white and they decide to study um, Asian and Indian food, and they'd be hailed as being super creative. Whereas if I tried to, you know, incorporate Other parts of Asia, or even Southern traditions, um, sort of like, what am I like? What, you know, what Yelp category do I put down? What what category on Facebook am I allowed to say? Can I say that I'm New American? I don't know. Then people are going to expect to have certain things on the menu. There's, um, so I mean, that's just like one example of how uh, rigid people think about, you know, food. And I think, um, hopefully, in the last year, we're starting to see that. Uh, racial identity and uh, roles are not boxes you know this is a fluid uh, culture and that is the beauty of our culture it's um it, as long as we keep everybody in a box we're never gonna get out of this um, i think kind of dark time um, it's really crucial that we welcome people into this country like we always have and then when we get them here that they're allowed to forge an identity for themselves that feels right to them and um, and then also kind of uh, ripens our our entire culture um, and then on the other side of it you know there's a certain level of distrust that I had um, from you know partners that I thought were my friends who decided that a restaurant should be profitable in six weeks and told me that I was too emotional about my business. And, you know, I was like, oh, my God, maybe I am. Maybe I'm supposed to be more like, you know, um, black and white and like uh, very pragmatic about everything. And, you know, it took me several months of like an internal struggle to say, no, m- me being emotional to my about my business is what gives me the fire and the passion to really um, own it. And um, I can be pragmatic about the numbers, but I cannot be pragmatic about the vision that I have for my restaurant and for my business. And that was something that was really isolating for me because I didn't know who to ask. If it was okay for me to feel so emotional about it, I live and breathe this business. And um, that is what actually helped me save the business um, several times over in in moments of um, utter terror and despair. And that's what really fuels me now. Um, So I I think there are a lot of uh, comfort levels that we don't get to have as, non-male identifying non-white identifying people and uh, and i'm not saying that it's the same for me as it is for uh, a black person who has grown up in this country and seen a different level or a different has has had a different experience but there is an othering that we have to come to terms with and i think food is the most um it's an olive branch it's a it's a way of um you know inviting a, a willing participant into that conversation uh without it being overtly about that conversation, I guess.
3: Yeah, food is a great connector. Um, I know that's the case, at least for me. Um, Titi, I want to end with a little bit of advice to uh, aspiring entrepreneurs, especially uh, other women of color. And I'm curious, what would you tell them um, as they begin their journey?
5: Um, I think it's important to uh, study a little bit about what it is that you expect. Um, uh, you know, I had a lot of uh, naivete. I, I literally jumped off a cliff. And um, I'm glad I did because I think if I thought about it too much, I might have changed my mind. But I think uh, getting a little bit of financial literacy um, is very intimidating. And that's the part that always nags you in the beginning. Like, I'm I'm not sure I know what it's supposed to be like. Uh, There are resources out there that you can get and at least know what your goals are and know that it's gonna take you a while to get there and that's okay, there's nothing wrong with you, you're not doing everything wrong. Um, Understand what your priorities are, and figure out how you can most um, capitalize yourself, be as as well-funded as you possibly can, um, and learn to sort of like, like live with your fear. The fear is gonna be there and it's normal and it's natural. Um, you just can't let it guide you. Um, it's, it's just your, uh, it's your passenger for a long time and you just get used to uh, saying, okay, well, I'm scared, yep. Everything is terrifying, but that's all right. It doesn't matter. Um, I'm going to stay with that and, and keep going. And you learn to hone your instincts that way and uh, lead with your gut and know that it's going to be hard work, but um, you're going to figure out the best way for you. And uh, what works for you doesn't work for anybody else. And what works for everybody else may not work for you. So it's really important to like find your own way and don't give up and know that you have to work all the time. <laughs>
3: Yeah, that's some great advice to end on. Um, Chidi, thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing your insights. This is really valuable. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening.
2: For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.
0: Hopefully this is the last time you'll hear this ad, because with Chime checking account features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe, Open your account in minutes at chime.com/goals24 that's chime.com/goals24 chime feels like progress banking services and debit card provided by Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA members FDIC spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply terms and conditions apply go to chime.com/disclosures for details